even now, Lord Jesus, even now, even now, for I ask this in your name, amen. God be praised. What a privilege it is to be here. One of the reasons I accepted this invitation was because I was aware of the fact that I would be meeting people for the first time that I would be spending eternity with forever. And I thought it was about time for us to get together, and so I <laughs> decided to initiate this eternal rendezvous, this eternal journey and vacation. I'm grateful for the kindness of Dr. Wade Humphreys, his wife, Dr. Claire Humphreys, and their two boys who are with them, Caleb and Cameron and little Abigail, who is with us and yet not with us. Um, I want to thank God for this church. You have, uh, in a very significant way, invested in the theological education of this young man. And it is not only paying great dividends, but will pay innumerable dividends. He is a young man of excellent spirit. I've already adopted him. I want you to know that. Uh, I've adopted him and his family. My wife and I love them, appreciates uh, uh, his wife, who is an absolute gem, an absolute gem. And I thank God for the privilege of meeting you to share with you on this particular day. The Lord has done great things for you. Well, you and I are very glad. Let's open the scripture this morning to Joshua chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 9. Uh, the second service, I want to preach on Joshua chapter 2, part 1, and tonight Joshua chapter 2, part 2. So we'll just be living in Joshua for the three services. And you're used to that because your pastor preaches through books of the Bible, as all of us should, because we want to preach the whole counsel of God. Hear these words from Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. I want to talk about a new beginning. A new beginning. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified 
Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, says to us that one can only advance as one returns to the beginning. In other words, he was saying you can only go forward by going backwards. And therefore, he baptized the clarion call of the 16th century Reformation. Ad fontes, ad fontes, A-D-F-O-N-T-E-S, which means back to the sources. Ad fontes, originally it meant back to Greek antiquity, back to Roman antiquity. But by baptizing it, he is saying, go back to first century Christian tenets and beliefs, back to solus Christus, by Christ alone. First Timothy 2 and 5 says that there's only one mediator between God and people, and that is the man Christ Jesus. I know that we live in a day where we don't want to offend anyone, and therefore we want to offer all kinds of salvific options. Uh, Buddhism, Confucianism, Zoroastrianism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but Christianity uh, follows the words of Jesus who says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. Solus Christus, by Christ alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. And here Paul in Romans 5 and 1 saying, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We just got finished singing it. Sola gratia, by grace alone. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, By grace are ye saved. And my 90-year-old mama says that grace is getting something from God for nothing. And therefore, any time we add anything to grace, it ceases to be grace. Grace is God giving us everything when we have nothing to offer him. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola scriptura, by scripture alone. And hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 4 and 4. For it is written that man, that people, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we do well with solas Christus and sola fide and sola gratia and sola scriptura, but we struggle with this last one. Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. For Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever it may be, do it all to the glory of God. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. So Luther reminds us that we can only go forward by returning to the beginning. And we need to go backwards because we have problems with amnesia. And God has to tell us Twice, over and over and over again, there's even a book in the Bible called Deuteronomy, which really means the second law. God has to keep repeating things because we either get amnesia or we're hard of hearing or we have selective listening. 
where we listen to what we really want to hear. And God has to keep telling us the same old thing again. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-scarred brow lead me to Calvary. Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. In James, Weldon Johnson's lift up every voice and sing. He has this lyric. God of our weary years. God of our silent tears. Thou who has brought us thus far along the way. Thou who has by thy might led us into the light. Keep us forever in the path we pray. Lest our feet stray from the places our God where we met thee. Here it is. Lest our hearts drunk with the wine of the world. We forget thee. Shallowed beneath thy hand. May we forever stand true to our God. True to our native land. And therefore God continues to rehearse in our ears. How far he has brought us. No wonder the philosopher George Santayana has said that those who forget the past, those who do not remember the past, are those who are condemned to repeat it. And Joshua, therefore, is opened up with this statement. It's very brief, it's telegraphic, and yet it is pregnant with significance. After the death of Moses, God said to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, that's a significant statement for Israel because it suggests that a 40-year leadership is now over. Moses, the great liberator, is dead. Moses, the one who brought the law down from uh, Mount Sinai after having a 40-day summit meeting with God, is dead. Moses, who took his rod and held it out over the Red Sea, and the Red Sea parted and stood as retainer walls in attention as the children of Israel crossed over on dry ground is dead. Moses, who stood as an intercessor in Exodus 32 when God threatened to make them an extinct people, and Moses says, God, you can't do it. According to your word, you said you were going to not only bring them into the wilderness, but you're going to bring them to the promised land, and if you kill them in the wilderness, then Egyptians will say that you were not good on your promise and that you brought them out of Egypt only to kill kill the people in the wilderness. Moses, my servant, is dead. There are some moments, brothers and sisters, that are frozen in time. That sent tidal waves across the surface of the nation. What will we do? Moses is dead. There are moments in American history that we'll never forget, and some of us are here to remember those moments. December the 7th, 1941, the bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. It's a moment frozen in time. November the 22nd, 1963, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas, Texas. April the 4th, 1968, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis, Tennessee at the Lorraine Hotel. May the 10th, 1994, not in our country, but the inauguration of Nelson Mandela as the first non-white president of South Africa. Or, if you will, April the 19th, 1995, the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City. And who can forget 
the date, September the 11th, 2001. Twin Towers bombed. A nation rocked from center to circumference. And this is one of those moments. Moses is dead. What do you do now after 40 years are over? And yet the next statement, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, now, Joshua, arise you and these people and go across Jordan to the land I'm about to give to them. In fact, I've already given it to them. It suggests that Moses is dead, but God is not. God buries his workers, but not his works. God buries Moses, his worker, but not his work. Now, Joshua, you and all these people arise and go across Jordan and possess the land I'm about to give to them. In fact, I've already given it to them. That's a significant word for us because we need to remember how dispensable and expendable and unnecessary we are. Moses is dead, but I've got somebody else. I've got Joshua who will lead the work on. I've got to understand that even after Naomi dies, there is a roof. And after Eli, the high priest, dies, there is a Samuel. And after Elijah goes back to, goes to heaven, there is an Elijah. And after Paul gives up the ghost and is probably beheaded in 64 AD in Rome, there is Timothy. And I've got to remember that I'm not necessary, that God has a replacement for me and for you. I think we become puffed up with arrogance to the point that we think that we're the only fish in the sea and the only pebble on the beach and the only rooster in the barnyard and that God can't do without us, that God needs us. Stop listening to these rinky-dink preachers who tell you that God needs you. God doesn't need you. God did very well before he created anything. God didn't need a human being uh, to keep him company. In fact, one of the reasons I believe God made human beings last so that we would not have any bragging rights, so that when Adam woke up, everything that God made would be there, and he could not say, look what God and I did. No, this is God alone who created the world out of nothing. Stop coming to church, acting as if heaven ought to give you a standing ovation because you showed up. Stop coming to the place where you have to be drafted and begged to serve. God doesn't need us. But what moves me is God doesn't need me, and yet he wants me. And he still chooses to use me. Ought to be banging down the pastor's office. Ought to be volunteering. Ought to be saying, this is the gift that I have. And therefore, whatever God gives me, I'm going to use it to the best of my ability. I'm glad to be in the service just one more time. Moses is dead, but Joshua has been trained to take his place. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, I know that the original languages in which the Old Testament and New Testament were written uh, were the following. In the Old Testament, Aramaic and Hebrew. In the New Testament, Greek. So there were no punctuation marks. There were no grammatical marks in the original, uh, lang in the original text. But there's something that is quite interpretive about the 
grammatical and punctuational marks that are in the text at times. Here's a situation right in this particular text. Moses, my servant, is dead. If you have a contemporary English version, the punctuation mark is period. Moses, my servant, is dead. If you have an NIV, there's a period there. If you have an NRSV, there's a period there. If you have a revised English Bible, there's a period there. If you have a today's English version, there's a period there. And it ought to be, at least in a logical way, because what other punctuation mark do you put after the word dead? Dead means termination. That's it. But in the King James Version, that was good enough for my mama and my father. And good enough, if you will, for Paul and Silas, if you get my drift. And good enough for me, it says, Moses, my servant is dead. Semicolon. Semicolon doesn't mean termination. Semicolon means continuation. And I think there's something very theologically interpretive about that. Because really what God is saying is, Moses, my servant is dead. Not termination, but continuation. I'm continuing what you think is over. Some of us are living a life of uh, the grammatical mark of the period. Termination. When God wants you to live in the grammatical arena of the semicolon, a continuation. Never put a period where God has put a semicolon. In fact, as I read scripture, I see God literally in terms of theological interpretation giving us a theology of the semicolon. Look at it in Genesis chapter 50, verse number 20. What where Joseph says, you meant it unto me for evil, brothers, semicolon. Don't put a period there. But God meant it unto me for good to save many people alive. Psalm 30 and 5. This is really the rendering of it. Weeping may endure for a night. Don't put a period there. Semicolon. But joy comes in the morning. There it is in Psalm 34 19. Many of the afflictions of the righteous. Don't put a period there. It's not over. Semicolon. But the Lord delivers them from them all. And all oh, look at John 16 33. And here Jesus said that uh, many uh, in this world, many of us, all of us shall have tribulation. Semicolon. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world in one of the greatest texts in all of the Bible. And I'm so glad that the rendering theologically is a semicolon and not a period. In Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin. Help me. Mm, I'm glad that it's not a period there. That's termination. That means it's all over. Semicolon. But mm, the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, you have come to a place where God wants to remind you to live a life out of theology of the semicolon. Whatever you face like I have, tests that are serious, and you don't know what the outcome is going to be, look at it as a semicolon. No matter what happens, God is with you before the test. God is with you during the test, and God is with you after the test. Some of you may have suffered uh, relational rifts. It's not time for the period. It's time for the semicolon because life is going to go on without that. 
Some of you have gone through financial reversals, and you've been on a job for 25 and 30 years, and that job has closed down. You know what God is saying to you? Live the life of the semicolon and not the period. Some of you know what it's like to have your confidence broken and for your children to defraud you and turn their back on you. But don't live according to the period. It's not over. Live according to the semicolon. Moses is dead, but God is not and is raising up a Joshua to fulfill and to complete his plans. The text says, now, Moses, my servant, is dead. I want to put a semicolon there. Now, that's the next word. I don't know what it is in your text, but in the text I looked at, the word was now. That's a crucial word. Because when we look back just one chapter, back to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse number 8 and 9. Just one chapter back. It won't tie your hands too much. Back to Deuteronomy. It's the book before, verses 8 and 9, where God speaks and says, You have been mourning the death of Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. It's time to move out. In fact, back in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 6, God says, you have been around this mountain too long. Too long. How long are you going to mourn for Moses? How long are you going to uh, stay in the same place? You've been marching around the wilderness for 40 years, the longest funeral procession in history. How long are you going to stay here? It's time for you to move out from where you are and possess the promises that I've already made to your father Abraham over 400 years ago. Some of us have been in the same place where we are now for many years. Same attitude, same disposition, same temperament. Move away from that. Some of us play videotapes of things people have done to us many years ago at midnight. Some of those folks are dead. And we get heart palpitations and we just can't get over that. And God is saying, now, move out. Some churches get stuck in places. I was moved when I looked and saw brothers and sisters who had some challenges, which all of us do, of course. And uh, before I could lift up my hand to say something to anyone, a brother got up from his seat and took off running and grabbed and put his arms around me. And I thought, oh, this church understands that everybody is made in the image of God and after his likeness. And the church has to become more globalized where we marry the global and the local and understand that we move out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the utmost parts of the earth and that God is a God who is so inclusive that the kingdom of God will reflect those from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue according to Revelation 7 and 9. Now, when will you move Robert Smith from where you are to where God wants you to go. It's the hour of now. If not now, then when? If not you, then who? If not there, then where? As God speaks, God says, now it's time to move out. Joshua, I want you to rise, you and all these people, and go over to the Jordan, to the land I'm about to give 
to them. I'm about to give to them. In fact, I've already given it to them. I promised it to Abraham back in Genesis 12, and I promised it to Abraham more specifically in Genesis 15 and 18, and even gave him the boundaries of it, which are repeated right here in this first chapter. And God says, it's time to do it. And it's already yours, but I'm about to give it to you, and it won't be yours until every place that your foot steps on. When you do that, then you claim it. Then it becomes yours. It's yours by promise, but it will only be yours by acquisition when you do this. In other words, God is saying there must be the marriage of the divine and the human. It's divine human instrumentality where God says, I will only do what I will do, what you cannot do as you participate with me and do what you can do. Joshua, have the people to march around the walls one time for six days and on the seventh day march around seven times. And after 13 revolutions, they're going to see that the cement blocks, if you will, are no more loose after 13 revolutions. That their feet uh, have not caused the foundations uh, to loosen the structure. So that they'll understand that, that if these walls are going to fall down, God's going to have to bring them down without a crane or a bulldozer. And when they marched around and uh, there was the blowing of the trumpet and the shouting of the people, then God brought the walls down. I want you to take and uh, roll back to stone, John 11. Uh, I know you can roll back to stone in front of Lazarus' tomb because you rolled it in front of it. Now you roll it back and I'm going to call him. You can't call his name and give him life. But after you roll back the stone, I'm going to say, Lazarus, which means God is my helper, come forth. And then when he comes forth, bound up, then I want you to take and loose him, unwrap the grave clothes. Because even though he has life, he's still in prison. And let him go. And the reason why I know you can unwrap the grave clothes is because you wrapped it. Now you do what you can do, and I'll do what I can do. And some of us are waiting for God to do everything in our lives and in our churches, and God will not do it. He's waiting on us to. And when we do that, he will do what you and I cannot do. In fact, I want you, Joshua, to take and lead these people to the land that I'm about to give them. In fact, I've already given it to them. He says to Joshua, cross the Jordan. Cross it. As I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. Now you cross it. It's a strange thing because God will establish you as a person. You will not have to prove yourself. I've got a problem with people who have to always vindicate themselves and showcase themselves and prove themselves. God says, as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. Moses needed uh, uh, some light to lead the people in the wilderness. So I provided a pillar of fire at night in the wilderness. And you're going to need, Joshua, some light when you're chasing the Gibeonites. And when you're chasing them in the nightfall, or rather protecting the Gibeonites, and chasing the five-nation confederacy that uh, will be threatening them, you're going to need some light. And therefore, since you need light so that they don't get away, I'm going to put the earth on eastern daylight savings time and stop the sun for you in the land of Gibeon and the moon in the valley of Adullam because as I was with Moses and gave him light, I'm going to be with you. As I was with Moses, when Moses came to this burning bush 
I said to him, take off the shoes from your feet, for the ground you're standing on is holy ground in Exodus 33, Exodus 3 rather. I'm going to say the same thing to you in Joshua chapter 5. When you are standing there and looking at the great city of Jericho with these great walls, I'm going to say to you through my commander-in-chief, who probably is Christ before Bethlehem, take off the shoes from your feet because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. As I was with Moses at the Red Sea and part of the Red Sea, I'm going to be with you in the parting of the Jordan River. In other words, what I did for Moses, I'm going to do for you. So you have no reason to fear. I am with you. It's amazing that God will say to Joshua, cross the Jordan, chapter 3, verse number 15, and it's harvest time. The most difficult time where the flood waters have overflowed the banks of the Jordan. Why harvest time? Why not when the Jordan River was at its lowest depth? No, you will cross at harvest time. And we see why in chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. Because after they had celebrated the Passover for the first time and had been circumcised, the men were, that the Bible says that the manna would cease the next day and they would eat from the corn of the land, the old corn of the land that the people of Canaan had planted. In other words, they didn't have to plant anything. They crossed during the harvest time when the Jordan had overflowed its banks so that they would have something to eat based upon what other people had planted so that they could go on and plant And by the next year, they may be eating from their own harvest. It's what God says to Joshua in chapter 24, verse 13. You are going to live in cities that you didn't build. And you're going to eat from vineyards that you didn't plant. And you're going to drink from wells that you didn't dig. And here, you're going to eat the corn that someone else has planted Because you crossed at the most difficult time when the Jordan was overflooding its banks. We say we want to advance as Christians. We want to advance as a congregation. We are asking for great challenge. We're asking for great moves, prodigious mountains that we have to climb. It's Frederick Douglass who reminds us that there are people who want to progress, but they don't want difficulty. You can't have crops, he says, without plowing up the ground. You, you may like the waves, but you don't want the awful roar that it produces as it beats against your vessel. You want the sky, but you don't want the zigzag lightning and the roar of the thunder. But you can't have progress without difficulty. And you want a great harvest, but it means it's going to take a great flood. It's going to take a great challenge in order for us as Christians and even for us as congregations to go to the heights that God wants us to go to. I, uh, I'm a freaking fly miler uh, uh, person. And it's an amazing thing because I believe what my mama said. I would never fly a plane. Mama believed in the Bible. Mama said, Jesus said, lo, I'm with you. 
always, even to the end of the world. That's what she said. She admitted. And I believe my mama. Lo, I'm with you. So I wouldn't fly. But I got called from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary to Beeson Divinity School or Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama in 1997. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, and have for 60 years, which meant I would have to drive from Cincinnati to Birmingham. That's 500 miles each way. That's 1,000 miles. That's not just wear and tear on a car. It's wear and tear on the drive. I tried it for two weeks because I was preaching in the church at that time every Sunday, uh, preaching throughout the year. And I leave church on Sunday evening, dead tired, turn an eight-hour trip into a 12-hour trip, sleep all day Monday in order to regain my strength to teach on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Dead tired on Friday, drive back, get back to Cincinnati, tired, rest, and then preach on Sunday. Tried it two weeks. And I discovered that Mama left the W, the put, the, uh, put W there, when Jesus just had L-O, low, I'm with you. And so I started flying. We had direct flights from Cincinnati to Birmingham. I could leave Monday morning at 7 a.m. and get to Birmingham at 7 a.m. Because, that's a fast flight. Because Cincinnati is on Eastern Standard Time and Birmingham is on your time, Central. Worked well. I, I got up to the silver level. But you never got any upgrades on silver. Then they cut out direct flights from Cincinnati to Birmingham, Birmingham, Cincinnati. And I have to fly from Cincinnati to Birmingham, Cincinnati to Atlanta, Atlanta to Cincinnati. Two and a half layovers in Atlanta. But it gave me more legs. Got me moved up to gold. <laughs> Every now and then I'd get an upgrade. When you got an upgrade in first class, they take your coat. They give you some snacks. They give you something to drink. It's just relaxing, good seat, really wonderful. Everything you need. And if you had long flights to the East Coast, you'd even get lunch and dinner. Breakfast is great. But that just happened every now and then. Then I started preaching. God had started expanding the ministry. I'd leave from Birmingham. And I'd need to go to Little Rock, Arkansas to preach. And I'd get on the plane. And no longer did they have flights going from Birmingham to Little Rock. I had to fly from Birmingham back to Atlanta. Then fly from Atlanta past Birmingham where I started and finally get to Little Rock. But it gave me more legs. It moved me up to platinum. Ah, <laughs> oh, upgrade. And then I kept on flying. Until now, they moved me up to diamond. And I get upgrades all the time except every now and then. Because what God was trying to teach me was this. And you see this in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 and 18, where the Bible says that when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he did not take them by way of Philistia, which was shorter, which was nearer. Instead, he took them by way of the wilderness and through the Red Sea. He didn't take them the short way. He took them the long way. But when you go the long way, oh, it's all right to go from Cincinnati to Birmingham, Birmingham back to Cincinnati, but you're not going to get any upgrades. It's going to take you sometimes flying to get to Little Rock, flying from Birmingham backwards in order to go forward to get to where you want to go Little Rock. In other words, sometimes 
you have to go backwards to go forwards. Life is like that. Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish theologian, reminds us of this. He says, life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards. Life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards. And there are those of us who sit here right now who have enough perspective to understand that there's some things that have happened in our lives, some things that God vetoed, and we got upset because we thought that God was not acting in the best of our good and in the best of our interests, which we thought was godly. But sometimes when you look backward enough and see that perspective, you're glad that God has led you backwards. Some of you, this young man is sitting next to this beautiful young lady. I don't know what their past is, but I know that all of us have probably had experiences where there was a girlfriend in high school that uh, we just had to have. You know, there's some young men that just have to have Beyonce, and God says, no, you can't have Beyonce. What you really need is Whippy, Whippy Goldberg. I know she, <laughs> she doesn't look the best, but Whippy will be a good mother for your children. Whippy will be faithful for you. And when you get old in age and you can't walk, Whippy will push you in a wheelchair. She'll clean you up because real beauty is below the epidermis. And I'm not for bad. I like it's wonderful to have a wife who is good on the optic nerve. And my wife is. It's wonderful. But you can be grateful that when you look at that person that you thought you had to have years later, you want to have a shouting spell and say, thank you, Jesus. Because God knows what's best for us. Some of the schools that God would let us go through, some of the places that we wanted to live in, God says, no. When you look back long enough, you'll see that God was working out his purpose in order that he might be glorified and we might be edified. Well, you got to learn to let him fly you back to Atlanta. It's not the shorter way in order for you to get the little rock because sometimes you have to go backwards in order to go forwards. I told you that I am a diamond. I don't say that with arrogance, but uh, I've gotten to the place now where I just expect that. I mean, I just expect it. I flew from Cincinnati to Birmingham the other day and I was on a 35 seat. There are 36 seats in the plane. I'm 35 seats. Sometimes I'm in 35B, which means I'm in the middle. On the next to the last row, with a guy as big as I am on my left and a guy as big as I am on my right, and it's miserable because what God wants to remind me of this is learn to sit in coach. Don't get so arrogant and caught up that you forgot where you came from. You living and worshiping in this expanded facility? Don't become, if you will, complacent. Now that you have some room to spread out, don't think that this is the period. This is just a semicolon. God wants to do greater things for you. Learn how it was when you used to worship in funeral homes. Don't lose the joy. Don't become stagnant. Don't become so sophisticated that you can't worship God in spirit and in truth. Don't become so educated. I know how to say educated. Don't become so educated that you don't understand that God deserves not only your head, but your heart when it comes to worshiping. Let me go on and close. I'm supposed to be done in 48 years. I've never finished a sermon in 48 years, so I'm going to take and put a semicolon here and pick up in a little bit. God said to Joshua, now you take these people over Jordan and possess the land that I'm about to give to them. In fact, I've already 
given it to them. Joshua has already been prepared. We see that in verse number 9 of Deuteronomy chapter 34, where Joshua had the spirit of wisdom in him because Moses had laid his hands on him. And the Bible says that the people listened to Joshua, but they did what Moses commanded. In fact, we see the same thing taking place in Numbers chapter 27, verses 22 and 23. God had prepared Joshua to succeed Moses. Wanda and I just came off a cruise recently. We went to St. Lucia. And uh, one of the great lessons that I learned there from one of the natives was this. He showed us uh, a, bana a banana uh, plant. It's not a tree, a banana plant. And he said that on this banana plant there are stalks, and on each stalk there could be 100 bananas. He says once that plant starts growing up and maturing, it sends a seed alongside of it so that while it's maturing, here comes another plant up because that banana plant only grows once and then it dies. So that that plant will succeed the plant that's already growing and dies. A plant sends a seed for another plant because the plant that is growing is going to die. Every church, oh my God, you see these two young guys, Caleb and Cameron, and there's another young fellow who greeted me when I got out of the car, couldn't have been more than four years of age, gave me a bulletin and welcomed me to the Longview Point Baptist Church, four years old. That little somebody's putting that plant alongside of it to replace and to train them up. And we've got to keep doing that because every church has to understand that someone has to come up alongside of him or her so that the church will go on. Well, I'm going to finish this, and I will, so let me say one more thing, and I'm going to quit. Put a semicolon here, not a period. This is not termination. This is continuation. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you, Joshua, take these people across the land, across the river Jordan, to the land that I'm about to give to them. In fact, I've already given it unto them. And God says to Joshua, he says it three times, chapter 1, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 9, be strong and very courageous. And then in verse number 9, he lifts this up. He says, don't be fearful, fear not, for I am with you wherever you go. Now, I'm told that there are 365 fear nots in the Bible, and if there are 365 fear nots in the Bible, there's a fear not for every day of the year. And here's one right here in verse 9. Fear not. The very first fear not in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 15, verse number 1, where God says to Abraham, Abraham, fear not, for I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And God is saying to Abraham, don't fear because I'm your shield. I'm in front of you. I'm not going to provide a shield. I'm going to be your shield. In our little church, they used to sing a song, God is so high that you can't get over him. And he's so low you can't get under him. And he's so wide you can't get around him. That God is your shield, which means that nothing can get to you and me unless God moves. And whatever God permits, God promotes. God has a purpose to promote. And it may not be convenient. It may not feel good. But he has a purpose to promote in order that he might glorify himself. So don't fear because I'm your shield, Job, and I'm your exceeding great reward. I will permit Satan to attack you, but I will promote my will and show that you are a man 
who will stand and will be faithful to me. And then there's the fear not in Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. And then God says in verse number 6 of Psalm 23, he says to David to tell the people, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy will follow after me. When I used to preach this many years ago, I always had goodness and mercy on either side. But David said, goodness and mercy follows after me, which really means this for me, that when I stand before God, and I know that I'm not blameless, literally, I'm not sinless, literally, I'm not guiltless, literally, and I stand before God, and I know that strong in my pathway behind me uh, will be all kinds of sin and things that I am embarrassed about. And he'll tell me to turn around and I'll look and I'll see that my pathway is guiltless, sinless, blameless. And I will wonder, what happened to my sin? And he'll say, surely goodness and mercy followed after you, picking up after you, cleaning up after you, gathering all of that stuff so that when I stand before God, I'll be dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne on Christ. The solid rock I stand, all other ground is sick and stand. So you don't have any reason to fear because I've got your front and then I've got your back. And then John says, or Jesus says in Revelation 1, 17 and 18 to John, John fell at his feet as dead when he saw the glorified, resurrected Lord. Jesus said, fear not, John, because I am the one who was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. And I've got the keys of death Hell and the grave. In other words, I've got the keys to Satan's house. (laughs) Death, hell, and the grave. Now, if he has the keys to Satan's house, (laughs) Satan is not as bad as we make him. We make him too powerful. We spend too much time talking about Satan. He's got the keys. If he's got your front, he's got your back. And he's got the keys, which means he's got authority, which means that there's no door in the universe that he doesn't have a master key to. No door. There is nothing that can be closed before him. You and I need today to experience a new beginning. And that new beginning is not a proposition, it's a person. Christ is the new beginning. He's not only the beginning, the alpha. He's the end, the omega. And everything in between. And wherever you are, understand that because he died on Friday and rose on Sunday morning. This Joshua, who was from Judah as well, this Joshua, who got up from the grave with all power in his hand, is able to give you a new beginning. Stop letting the devil tell you about your past. Tell the devil about your future. Tell him about your present. Tell him that God sent his son they called him Jesus. Jesus, He came to love, heal, and forgive. He came to die to bear my part. And the empty grave is there to prove my Savior lived because he lives. I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone because I know he holds the future. Then life is worth living because he lives.